This morning, I invite you to take your Bible, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 57 to 62, as today we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke in a sermon series entitled Blessed Assurance. Today, I want to speak to you about no more excuses. No more excuses. Luke, chapter 9, verses 57 to 62. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. The one word that seems to describe Jesus in our passage is the word commitment. Determination is etched on his face. He has purpose in every step. He is a man on a mission and no one or nothing is going to distract him. Jesus knows that he came to be a substitutionary sacrifice for a world of lost sinners. Jesus is on a road that will lead him to Jerusalem, leave him dangling on a cross of wood. In the preceding passage, Luke writes for us in chapter 9, verse 51, that as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus will not be denied. He will not be deterred. He has come to seek and to save the lost. Repeatedly, he told anyone who would listen that he was on his way to Jerusalem. He'd be handed over to the religious rulers. They would mock him, spit upon him, beat him, and execute him. And on the third day, he would rise from the dead. Up until now, Luke has been preoccupied with the identity of Jesus. And now he turns his attention to the activity of Jesus. For about the first eight or nine chapters, the question is, who is this? Who is this man named Jesus? It's asked by the disciples. It's asked by the crowds. It's asked by the Pharisees. Even in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is the one who asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they responded, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Still others, one of the Old Testament prophets resurrected. But what about you, Jesus said? Who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who accurately stated, you are the Christ of God. Now, Luke has told us that Jesus is Christ. He's in a class all by himself. And now he turns his attention from the identity of Jesus to the activity of Jesus. In other words, he's answering the question, why have you come? That ultimate answer will be given in Luke chapter 19. When Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus or with Zacchaeus. When he has a conversation with Zacchaeus, and uh, at the conclusion of that conversation, Jesus says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. 
Who is Jesus? He is Christ in a class all by himself. Why has he come? He came to seek and to save the lost. When we catch up with Jesus in Luke chapter 9, he is a man on a mission. He has set his face for Jerusalem. He is resolute. He will not be denied. Along the way, a man approached him and said, I will follow you wherever you go. We don't know what prompted this man to give this declaration of allegiance. Maybe this man had been a recipient of one of the mighty miracles of Jesus. Maybe this man had been convicted of his sin after hearing the Messiah's preach. Maybe this man had some marital problems, maybe some financial difficulties. And he thought to himself, I'm going to cash in on the popularity of Christ. After all, Jesus has helped others. Maybe he can help me. Maybe this man made this declaration because it looked like everybody was following Jesus. At this time of his ministry, Jesus was at the apex of popularity. In fact, Luke and the other gospel writers tell us that once Jesus sets his sights on Jerusalem, the crowds fall away in droves. By the time we find Jesus hanging on the cross of Calvary, there aren't very many disciples around. And even the would-be followers have followed at a distance. Maybe this is one of the last guys to jump on the Jesus bandwagon. Maybe he's one of the last ones to jump on and say, hey, I'll follow you wherever you go. Regardless of why he made this declaration, Jesus sees right through him. Jesus said, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I take that to mean that there are times when the animal kingdom will have it better than Christians. What he's saying to this man is, don't be duped into thinking that following me will only lead you to a life of comfort and ease. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You read the gospel through and through, and you must come to this conclusion that Jesus came into this world in a borrowed barn. He left this world in a borrowed tomb. He never owned a home. He never rode in a fancy chariot. The one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills was subjected to abject poverty. He only had a little bit of money that was put in a satchel, and Judas Iscariot, one of his own, stole it from him as he was the keeper of the purse. Jesus did not have much. He never had a permanent place to rest his hat at night. It would seem to me that more times than not, Jesus used a rock as his pillow and the stars as his blanket. He was homeless. He is saying to this man, don't be fooled into thinking that if you follow me, I'm going to make your life convenient and comfortable. Don't be fooled into thinking that following me, I will solve all of your problems and you'll live on easy street. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. Son of man has no place to lay his head. I take that to mean that there's no promise for Christ or for Christ chasers that we're going to have the luxuries of life in this world. Jesus has never promised that his followers will live in the big house or drive the nice cars or have a fairy tale marriage or raise perfect children or get a promotion every three to five years or have health into the twilight years of life, 
or be able to retire early with a healthy nest egg. Jesus never made these promises. He wants this would-be follower to understand up front that following him just might be painful. Following him may be hurtful. Following him may have its own fair share of suffering. If you sign on the dotted line, if you follow the Savior, you just might be rejected just like Jesus was rejected. Jesus knows what it is to experience suffering and rejection, right? Just in the preceding passage, once Luke tells us that as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Along the way, Jesus comes to a Samaritan village. He sends two of his disciples, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. He says, I want you to go, boys, and I want you to prepare what you and I would call an evangelistic crusade. I want you to go, and I want you to get the city ready. I want you to get the village ready for the coming of Christ. And so they go, and they do all the preparatory work to get ready for the great crusade that Jesus is going to have. But James and John are met with a lack of hospitality. The village people said, we don't want you, nor do we want your Jesus. Now when I say village people, I don't mean the band that sang that 1978 song YMCA. I mean the people living in that Samaritan village. Those village people said, we don't want you. We don't want Jesus. We don't want anything that looks or smells or tastes or walks or talks Jewish. We're Samaritans. Well, James and John, they, they didn't appreciate this at all. They came back to Jesus and they said, Jesus, can you imagine the lack of hospitality and the level of rejection that they've given to you and to us? Do you want us to call down fire from heaven? I guess this is why they get the name the Sons of Thunder. And it says that Jesus rebuked them, and they went on to another village. I'm fascinated by that. It doesn't say that Jesus corrected them, saying, boys, there's no way you can call down fire from heaven. Maybe these guys could actually do that. How cool would that be, right? I mean, you're witnessing to somebody, and they don't accept Jesus. You say, what would you say about my Jesus? Boom! Burn, right? I mean, can, can you imagine? Can you imagine if you had that capability, that capacity? It seems as if that, that James and John somehow maybe possibly could do that. And Jesus doesn't correct them saying, boys, y'all can't do that. He just says, now, boys, don't do that. He rebukes them and he moves on to another village. What's my point? My point is Jesus is familiar with rejection. So when this would-be follower, for whatever reason, comes up and says, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus says, I want you to consider what you're saying. I want you to count the cost. The last thing Jesus wants is for a follower to abort the mission when life gets uncomfortable. Jesus does not want to raise fickle followers. Sunday saints, capricious converts. He does not want us to be whimsical on the way. He wants us to be committed unto Him. He wants us to know at the very outset that following Him will not necessarily mean a life of ease and comfort. There will be pain. There will be heartache. There will be suffering. 
I mean, even foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And if that's true for the Son of Man, it just might be true for some Christians that bear his name. I don't know if this first would-be follower actually followed Christ. I don't know how he responded. How would you respond? I don't know if he said, it doesn't matter, count me in. Or if he said, whoa, wait a minute, time out. You mean life's not going to be easy and comfortable if I follow you? I need to reconsider this. At the very least, what I can tell you is this, that when this man walked away, he had to come to this one conclusion. That the biblical Jesus demands nothing less than total allegiance. Jesus said to a second man, follow me. And the man said, yes, Lord, but, but first let me go back and bury my father. This seems like a noble request, doesn't it? In Jewish culture, there were very few responsibilities that were regarded as a greater responsibility than a child giving his parents proper burial. This was something of utmost importance. After all, this was one of the last ways that a child could obey the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. This is one of the last ways that any child could honor father or mother by giving them a proper burial. So this man is asking for something that is quite noble. He's not rejecting the notion of following Christ. In fact, he thinks it's a pretty good idea. Yes, I will follow you, but first, let me go and bury my father. We have to assume that dad's not dead yet. If dad was dead, this man would already be at the family farm. We can assume that this man's father is sick. Maybe he's on his deathbed. Maybe this second would-be follower is actually on his way to get to his dad. When Jesus interjects and says, come and follow me, and he thinks to himself, of all the times, Jesus, for you to ask this, this is the worst time possible in all my life for you to ask this. I like the idea. I'm not opposed to it. But first, let me go and bury my father. Seems like a noble request. It seems like a good excuse, doesn't it? You may expect Jesus to say, oh, well, by all means, you go do that. And as soon as that funeral's over, then come and follow me. I'll tell you where I'm going to be at that time. We don't know how to really guess with 100% accuracy when anybody's going to pass. And if we don't know it in the 21st century, then you certainly know that in the 1st century, trying to guess how long somebody's going to linger between life and death, that was nothing more than a holy hunch. This man's father could be in that condition for days, if not weeks, if not months. Did you hear what Jesus said? Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Does that sound rude to anybody? Does that sound insensitive in the least bit? Let the dead bury their own dead. Is Jesus being rude in this moment? My answer is no. I think what Jesus is doing is he's communicating 
the timeless truth that you and I cannot allow anyone or anything to block our pursuit of the one who pursues us. As noble as it may be, as good as it sounds, you nor I, we cannot allow anyone or anything to postpone or push off our commitment to Christ. We can't allow anyone, we can't allow anything to keep us from following wholeheartedly the Lord. It's not that Jesus is telling this man to neglect his responsibilities. It's not that Jesus is telling this man to neglect his family, to abuse his father. It's not that he's telling him any of that. He's just saying, listen, um, out of all of your relationships, your relationship with me, Christ, must be paramount. It must be first priority. And every other relationship, as good as they are, as healthy as they are, as necessary as they are, they pale in comparison to your commitment to me. So Jesus is communicating a timeless truth. We cannot allow anything to block our pursuit of the one who pursues us. We can't allow anyone. We can't allow anything as important as that thing is, as important as that person is. We cannot allow anyone or anything to postpone or to push our commitment to Christ. This second man is alive and well in the church culture today. He really is. You hear it frequently. It may be voiced by a student in high school or a student uh, who is entering into college. That person will say, I know that I need to make much of Jesus. I know I need to get serious about the Lord. And I will once I graduate from college. You just let me get rooted in my career. Just let me get started in my life. And I promise I'll be back at church. And I promise I'll be serious about the Lord. It's the, it's the young couple. They're newly married. And they say, you know, we know that Jesus is important. And we know that going to church is necessary. And when we start having kids, we'll be back at church. I mean, because we know the importance of raising our children in the faith family. And so we'll be back once we have kids. But now, you know, we're spending so much time getting to know each other. We're spending so much time at work, getting our careers established and up uh, and going. And so once all that's settled, then we'll get serious about following God. It's the middle-aged man who says, you know, once I hit retirement, I'm going to have all the time in the world. I'm going to have a lot of time to go and to do and, and, and to do ministry and mission work. I'll have more resources to give unto the Lord. And when retirement comes, I'm going to be the first one at church and the last one to leave. Once retirement comes, I'm going to put Christ first. But for right now, I've got so many things that are pulling at my plate. I, I've, I've got to get the youngest out of college. I've got to pay off this debt. I've got to get all my children kind of established. I've got to make money and store it away for an early retirement because my goal is to retire early and when I retire early then I'll make much of Jesus 
Do you hear in all three of those scenarios, this second man? Lord, I think it's a great idea. I want to follow you, but first, let me do this or that. But first, let me go here and do that. But first, let me do this or that. But first, but first, but first. Then Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. He's not being rude. He's not telling him to neglect his responsibilities. But what he is saying is don't allow that busyness, don't allow those responsibilities to paralyze your God-given mission. Don't allow the responsibilities of your life Don't allow the busyness in your world to paralyze you from doing your God-given mission. What's our God-given mission? Jesus says it. Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the gospel. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. When Jesus says to go and proclaim, those are written in present tense. It implies that it is a a present action. It's an ongoing, continuous action. You go and keep on going. You proclaim and keep on proclaiming. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So that begs the question, um, how well are we proclaiming the gospel? How well are we as individuals How well are we as a faith family proclaiming the kingdom of God? I can't speak to every individual, but what I can say about us as a body of Christ is that since March of last year, 13 months, the Lord has added 252 people to this church. 60 of them, by way of profession of faith, and baptism. I don't know that all of you just heard me. Because what I said was, in about 13 months, the Lord has added 252 individuals to His church. And of those 252, 60 of them have gone from death unto life and they've made it public through the waters of baptism. Praise His holy name. At the very least, it has to tell me that some of us are proclaiming the kingdom of God. That has to tell me some of us are. Because if none of us were proclaiming the kingdom of God, then 252 would not be added and 60 of them would not come through the waters of baptism. So some of us are, but I don't know about all of us. I don't know about all of us. Are we proclaiming the kingdom of God? Do you make it a priority that at least once a day, at least once a week, at least once a month, you're going to share the gospel with somebody? You share the gospel by your walk, but you also, at the end of the day, you've got to share it by your words. You can't just say, well, I'm just going to let people see how I live. That's fine and good, but you better tell them about Christ as well by your words. Since our beginning of the study of the Gospel of Luke, we've been asking about three questions. They're on banners as you come to the sanctuary. They're also located downstairs in a gathering area. The questions are, what, where, who? Since being a disciple is a lifelong believing learner of Christ, what are you learning? If you are a disciple of the Lord, then it's an assumption that God is teaching you something. 
you never get to the point where you graduate from the school of God. So God is teaching you something. So what are you learning? Where? Where are you taking the gospel? Are you taking it across the street? Are you taking it around the world? Just this past week, we had 29 of our senior adults take the gospel to New Orleans. Praise his holy name. We had 20 of our students and adults take the gospel to Peru. Praise his name. I know where they are going. Where are the rest of us going? Where are you going to take the gospel this year? Is it going to be in Pelham? Is it going to be in Peru? Where are you going to take the gospel? Is it across the street? Is it across the world? Where are you taking the gospel? If you're a disciple of the Lord, you've got to take the gospel somewhere because the gospel's inside of you, and as you go, you take the gospel. So where are you going and who? Who are you trying to reach? If a specific person does not fly across the screen of your mind in less than three seconds, you, my friend, are not being intentional enough. Who are you trying to reach? You cannot just say, I'm going to reach my neighbors. No, it's got to be a specific neighbor. You can't just say, I'm reaching Pelham. No, it's got to be somebody living in Pelham. You can't say, I'm just trying to reach the world. No, it's got to be some geographical location of the world. You cannot just speak in general terms. You've got to get specific. Who are you trying to reach? A couple of Sunday nights ago, we had a brother of our own faith family come up to me. And this is what he said. You know, I think I know who Mahu is. I said, huh? He said, I think I'm beginning to know who Mahu is. And it clicked. It dawned on me. And I thought to myself, praise the Lord. Somebody's thinking about this. Praise the Lord. Somebody is actually asking the question. So this morning, what I'm asking you is what's your what, where's your where, and who's your who? Because if you're a disciple... Don't get bogged down with the busyness and even the good, noble responsibilities of this life to the point that it stifles you and paralyzes you. Can some of you hear what Jesus says today? Let the dead bury the dead. Some of us need to hear that today. Let the dead bury their own dead. Ironically, dead can't bury dead. If a person's dead, he can't get up and bury another dead person. What Jesus is saying is, leave it alone. Let the dead bury their own dead. But you be preoccupied about going and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. So, what's your what, where's your where, and who's your who? Because that's who you are as a disciple of Christ. I don't know if this second man actually followed the Lord. But I, get, I bet he came to this conclusion. Biblical Jesus demands nothing less than total allegiance. Jesus said to a third man, follow me. The third man said, yes, Lord, I will. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Sounds like a good excuse, doesn't it? It not only sounds noble, it sounds biblical. There's a story in the Old Testament, it's 1 Kings chapter 19, where the prophet Elijah anoints and appoints his protege, Elisha. And Elisha makes this request of Elijah, can I go back and kiss my father goodbye? And Elijah permits 
his protege, Elisha, to go back home, tell mom and dad where he's going, what he's doing, and give them a proper hug and kiss. This is what this man is asking for. He not only has a, a noble request, but it sounds like a biblical request. It sounds like a good excuse to postpone commitment. He says, Lord, I like the idea. I, I'm really for it. I want to follow you, and oh, I want to follow hard after you. But first, let me go and say goodbye to mom and dad. Now, if there are any parents in the crowd, you can appreciate this request. I mean, if your child just one day up and left, and you didn't know where they went, and somebody told you, well, they, 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 they met this guy named Jesus, and, and then off he went to Taiwan, and, and you never heard anything from your son or your daughter, not even enough to come back and give you a hug, and give you a kiss, and tell you where they're going. I mean, you as a parent, you'd be bombed, right? Well, maybe a couple of us would. <laughs> I mean, most parents, most parents would, would be like, hey, look, you, you got to tell me where you're going. You gotta tell me what you're doing. At least have enough respect for me that you come back and tell me and give me a hug and a kiss. Let me know what's going on in your life. Most parents would be fit to tie if they realized that their child just up and left and they had no idea where they were going. So this third would-be follower, he says, Jesus, I love the idea of me following you wholeheartedly, but first, let me go back. Let me kiss mom and dad goodbye. Give them a hug. Tell them what's up. So at least they'll know my whereabouts. And Jesus replied, anyone who puts his hand on the plow and looks back is not fit for service in the kingdom of God. Whoa. Jesus is telling this guy, you don't have time. Time is of the essence. The harvest is ripe. We've got to go. You cannot Put your hand to the plow and then look back. Even if looking back, you're looking back to something that's good, something that's noble, to something that seems reasonable. It's not like he was looking back to old sin. It's not like he was looking back to an old skeleton in his closet. It's not like he was looking back to an old wayward life. He's looking back to tell mom and dad goodbye. That's pretty noble. That's pretty biblical. Jesus says, no, we don't have time for that. Time is of the essence. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that in his kingdom, there is no place for double-minded discipleship. Double-minded discipleship is useless. When he says you're not fit, it means that you're not useful. You're not productive. You're not efficient. You're not effective. You're not fit for service in the kingdom of God. There is no way, Jesus says, that you can be double-minded, where your mind can be consumed with following Christ and then your mind being consumed with something else. That something else cannot rival the supremacy of the Savior in your mind. You cannot be double-minded. You've got to be single-minded in your pursuit of God. He must be paramount in all of your priorities. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I like the imagery that he paints. It gives me a graphic picture. I don't know about you. You may be good at this. I, I never was. But have you ever tried to um, drive a tractor on a straight row while looking behind? 
You ever tried to mow your yard on a riding lawnmower? And you're trying to get the lines all straight and pretty, you know, and you're trying to, to, to ride that lawnmower in a straight line all the while you're looking behind. You ever tried to do that? You may be good at that. I never was. When I would do that, if I had my hand on the wheel and I looked back, the, hand, the wheel would go that way. Or if I looked this way, the, it would go this way. And when I looked up to see what I created, it was as crooked as the back leg of a dog. Now I see what Jesus is saying. You can't be double-minded. You can't be going one way and looking another and be useful in the kingdom of God. You've got to be single-minded in your pursuit of the one who pursues you. I've told you before about some diagnostic questions. These questions help me and so I repeat them to myself on a regular basis. And I've got a hunch that if they help me, they just might help you. What it does, these diagnostic questions, when I answer them honestly, it reorients my living. The question are these. Who or what do I think about the most? Who or what do I rearrange my schedule for? Who or what do I make it my aim to please? And there are times, and I know the right answer. Every day I know the right answer. I know the right answer is Jesus. He's the one I ought to think about the most. He's the one I ought to rearrange my schedule for. He's the one I ought to make my aim to please. But there are times in my life, and I suspect in your life too, that we have a ton of answers other than Jesus to those questions. If we're really honest. Who do we think about the most? What do we think about the most? Oh, well, sometimes it's the children. Sometimes it's our career. What do we rearrange our schedule for? Who do we rearrange our schedule for? Oh, sometimes it's our family. A lot of times it's our finances. Who do we make it our aim to please? What do we make it our aim to please? Sometimes it's our spouse. Sometimes it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend. More times than not, it's ourself. At the core of all sinfulness is selfishness. And more times than not, when it's not Jesus who's the answer to that question, it's myself who's the answer to that question. And I dare say, I'm not the only scallywag in the sanctuary today. If you answer the questions, you could come up with a host of answers of, of, of who you think about, who you're preoccupied with, uh, who you rearrange your schedule for, who you make it your aim to please. And many times, it could be somebody other than the Savior. If it's somebody other than the Savior, just remind yourself of these questions. Did that person create you? Did that person die for you? Did that person promise to come back and receive you unto himself where you will be where he is both now and forevermore? And the answer is a resounding no. Nobody other than Jesus can fulfill those responsibilities. So then that tells us that Jesus ought to be the one we think about the most. Jesus ought to be the one we rearrange our schedule for and Jesus ought to be the one we make it our aim to please. We can come up with a noble excuse of why we don't think about Jesus. We can come up with a what we think of as a biblical reason of why we don't serve Jesus. 
We've got other responsibilities. We've got family. We've got friends. We've got work. We've got the future. We've got provision. We've got providing. We've got all those things that we have to do. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back, even if you're looking back on something that is good and noble and reasonable, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is useless in the kingdom of God. (laughs) I don't know if the third person followed Christ, but I do know he walked away with this single conclusion. The biblical Jesus demands nothing less than total allegiance. One theologian said it this way, following Jesus is not another thing that you add to an overstuffed schedule like the taking of a second part-time job. Following Jesus, he says, is everything. It is the solemn commitment that forces every disciple to reevaluate all activities of life. That's discipleship. That's following Christ. That's making much of Jesus. It is the solemn commitment that forces every disciple to reevaluate every activity of life. Jesus is not something that we add to life. Jesus is life. Jesus is not something we check off a box. Jesus is the entire box. Jesus is not just something that we do in order to make ourselves feel better. Jesus is what we do to have life both abundant and free, both now and forevermore. Without Jesus, we're dead in our sins. But because of Jesus, he's made us alive both now and for all of eternity. So we serve him wholeheartedly. We think about him unashamedly. And we make much of him every day of our life. Jesus is walking with determination in his step. He is walking with purpose that is etched on his face. And he says to anyone who will listen, you come follow me. But I want you to know, it's going to cost you everything you got. Had a conversation with a man. One day he told me, um, I will give Jesus everything he asks of me. And without even thinking, which usually gets me in trouble, but without even thinking, I fired back at him this statement. Jesus will ask more from you than you're comfortable to give him. I'll give Jesus whatever he asks. Oh, my friend, Jesus will ask more of you than you're comfortable with giving. Because Jesus demands it all. Our stubbornness is not a stubbornness that refuses to submit some to Jesus. Our stubbornness is a refusal to submit all to Jesus. We'll give him some of our money, not all of it. We'll give him some of our marriage, not all of it. We'll give him some of our parenting, not all of it. We'll give him some of our career, not all of it. We'll give him some of our future, not all of it. Our stubbornness is not with surrendering some. Our stubbornness is with surrendering it all to Jesus. Here is one of the toughest prayers you could ever pray. Lord, I give you all that I can. And what I can't give you, I invite you to come in and take it's one of the toughest prayers you'll ever pray Lord today I give you all that I can 
But what I cling to, what I can't give you, what I think is too much, I invite you to come in and take. Because I just believe that Jesus, your grasp is stronger than mine. I can't arm wrestle you, Savior. You'll win every time. So I give you all that I can. What I can't give you, I invite you to come in and take. So on this day, can we sing? Can we think? Can we shout? Can we say? Can we believe? All to Jesus I surrender. And all to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him. And in His presence, I'll daily live. So I surrender it all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender it all. Let me tell you this morning, church, the biblical Jesus demands nothing less than total allegiance. So today, with no more excuses, today, wholeheartedly, Today, not double-minded. Today, we say, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. This is a hard word that Jesus gives to us. And Holy Spirit, you smack us between the eyes with a two-by-four. And we realize there are times that we abort the mission. There are times when we replace Jesus as Savior and we put somebody else on the throne and sometimes we even have the audacity to put ourselves on that throne. And oh God, please forgive us. So Lord, on this day, over these moments, as your Spirit has been reminding things, has been bringing things to our attention, Lord, on this day, help us to pray that we give you all that we can. What we can't give, we invite you to come in and take. So Jesus, we surrender all that we are to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.